with a meditation practice, the collecting on one point, like the mind gets scattered with thought, we, the worldly uh, impingements and the momentum of our habits, uh, we find ourselves the sense of being scattered and kind of confused. And so meditation is bringing together, collecting, uh, recollecting, uh, reflecting, contemplating these kind of words and give us that sense of uh, bringing attention to the here and now. Uh, not trying to solve any problems of the world, personal problems or worldly problems, but just uh, the simple act of paying attention in the present. So there's one point, isn't it, where we are right now, where each one of us is, physically, uh, each one of us is, is one point, and so we we bring attention to this very obvious fact. Nothing mysterious. It's a fact. This is the way it is. And so you have things like the eternal present or uh, this, uh, this, uh, the present, here and now, Pachubana Dhamma, Santitiko Akaliko, Ehi Pasko Upanayiko Bhajatang Vaiti Dapo Vinyuhi, the Dhamma. And so the more we collect or re recollect ourselves and we get scattered, uh, the world always has this, this sense of importance and urgency and, and uh, uh, impending doom or things have to get done or we haven't done something we should have done or this... Uh, feeling we've got to do something, that we're incomplete, uh, there's something wrong, there's something wrong, and we've got to find out what's wrong, and uh, we've got to, we haven't, we, we have to do this uh, in order to get it right. And that's the, I call that the, the flavor or the taste of the world. The world always has that, that sense that there's something wrong something not right, even when everything is fairly right, it still, it still feels something's wrong. Because the uh, nature of conditions are like that. The condition phenomena is unsatisfactory in itself. It's, it's not, it can't stabilize in any way in, into a peak moment of perfection and sustain itself. Uh, forever. Uh, this condition realm is around the, the beginning and ending, birth and death. And that's its perfection. 
that there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a criticism or a or a depressing reflection or uh, it's pessimistic. It's just noticing that that this conditioned realm of birth and death. And when we when we only know that, when we only pay attention to that, then then there's always this feeling of restlessness, incompleteness. Something there's something wrong or something will go wrong. <clears throat> there's reading history about a the British uh, Britain at the turn of the century in 1899, hundred years ago, where Britain seemed to be have everything, you know, seemed to be in complete control, and uh, it was the the superpower of the world, and there was a kind of smug satisfaction amongst the ruling classes at that time of that uh, the sense of We've got it right, and that, uh, and that uh, we that we'll, we'll just stay this way. Hopefully, we'll uh, we'll go on ad infinitum. And then, in the First World War, the disintegration of all that that myth. So even in uh, stabilized economies, political uh, situations, and seemingly uh, prosperous and and uh, steady times, that this is not to, to blind ourselves with a false sense of security. And sometimes we can just say everything's all right. Or we can use positive thinking and power of affirmation to to give the impression everything's fine. How many of you, when we meet each other, say, how are you? And we hope every time you say, fine, okay. And somebody says, I'm not so okay. Then you, oh, that feeds the sense of, uh, isn't it, uh, that, that anxiety. So in collecting ourselves, this recollecting, uh, in Thai they have, I like Thai with some room, you have the sense of bringing together everything at one moment, uh, because the, the mind can feel so kind of scattered all over the place after a day's work. That's why the, the noble silence helps, isn't it? To, keep this sense of samruam or collectedness that when we end up talking to each other we get we get a sense of being scattered even more of this we, we talk about political problems economic problems personal problems social problems problems with other people and and on and on like this, the mind gets weighed down by the endless problems of of the uh, world.
and then the coming together, bringing it all together, not in terms of dismissal or rejection of the world, not a rejection, not a a, a, a negative uh, turning away of, of the world, but reminding ourselves of the true nature, our true nature, that eternal present, that deathless reality, that we can only fully realize in the present moment when we're not being, when our mind isn't being scattered all over the place with all the endless intricacies of problems and conditions, changing phenomena that, uh, that affect us inevitably. But, but when that is our sole object of interest, then, then, that, uh, then we do feel a uh, sense of impending doom. This is, this is the uh, end of the millennium, end of a century. And there, it seems like the, the ending of something always has this, this sense of, of change, of doom. Like letting go of the world it can be a frightening perception, isn't it? We let go of be what will happen, you know. Everything will fall apart. It'll all collapse. Everything will end. I don't want to know who I am anymore. Everything will you know, change, and who knows what? Maybe drop into a black hole, uh, into uh, you know the unknown and the mysterious, the dark, frightening. Though we cling to uh, what we do know, what we. Even if it's not very good, we, we still cling to it because it, there's a sense of, of uh, safety, of false safety that comes from attaching to the habitual. So when we talk about active faith, you know, religious or spiritual development is all about this faith, this kind of letting go, uh, trusting, in the not, not in anything you can grasp. Hold up. There's nothing to grasp. And so that, that is like leaping off in the abyss into a black hole for some people, isn't it? You want, want something to hold on to uh, in order to feel secure or safe. <clears throat> But in the spiritual life, they use things like jumping into the abyss. That's a frightening one, isn't it? And two, an abyss is like a bottomless pit, isn't it, of darkness. A very frightening image. So recollecting, bringing attention. When you think about it, then of course it, you can scare yourself. Uh, I knew one person that, that had this insight on a meditation retreat, the insight into letting go. She got so frightened by it that she quit meditation completely and became a used car salesperson. 
uh, used cars, uh, selling used cars seems like pretty wretched. If you've been on a spiritual path, end up selling old cars to people. <laughs> but at least it's, uh, you know, it occupies your time and you can distract yourself <laughs> and, and keep yourself busy. Where some room collecting recollecting, recollecting, contemplating, this word contemplation is like from the Latin templum. A temple or a templum is a place you go to contemplate. The religion was a, a place that Romans used to go in order to contemplate existence, reality or truth. Get away from the, the village life, the, the family life, the, the pressures of society and profession and go to some place, a templum, to they recollect themselves. A place where you can contemplate. And so contemplation is isn't isn't thinking in terms of an, an, an logical thinking and analysis. It's where you kind of open your mind up and and watch and listen. Mystery of the night, the stars, just the the state of your own being, your your own con being a conscious being. And what is it all about? What is the purpose? What is the meaning? <clears throat> and then some people think there isn't any meaning. It's all purposeless. It's settled for a negative because you don't. Maybe it's too frightening. So you you think. It's, might as well operate in the sense that there's no meaning to life, no purpose. It's just a cosmic accident. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. But you don't really know. You know, there's not. You don't know. You might like that idea, but you don't know whether that really is the way it is. Because the way it is now, it's like this, isn't it? So you start from where you are, from the present, and the now, the here and now, the body, the breath. So right now, just start with just paying attention to, to the breath, inhaling, exhaling. the way it is. So your your conscious your conscious experience is is now particularly noticing this function of the body because it this is what's happening now. It's a way of collecting, uh, bringing together your mind and body in one point. So now just practice anapanasati for a while, just this sense of being with the breath, 
being fully, let the breath be fully conscious, a conscious experience. Notice how peaceful it is, it's a natural function. Not, it not, doesn't belong to any person, does it? Na- it's nature, it's Dhamma, it's the way it is. Not a, there's no gender to it, not a female, male breath, or Asian or European. Doesn't belong to anybody, but it's just this way. The body knows how to breathe. You don't have to decide how you're going to breathe. The body knows how to do it. Imagine if you had to make your body do all its functions. The thing about how busy you'd be all day long is after one meal, telling your body to digest this and how to get the vitamin A, vitamin B, and the right going to the right places. Wouldn't have time for anything else. How nice it is! The body knows exactly what to do with all this. We don't have to. We don't have to busy ourselves with with the uh, bodily functions. They they operate. They know this body knows what what it's supposed to be doing, how to do it. And we're the observer now. Just being the that which is aware, say breathing. The consciousness is now touching on the breath, isn't it? Contacts the breath. The breath and consciousness become one thing. At this time there's a big argument going on between the United States and the European Union over bananas. A very important fraught issue about bananas. The world's like that, isn't it? Something really urgent. The breath, isn't it? That's the vital function of the body, isn't it? It's really important. So you're paying something, to, paying attention to something really important. You stop breathing, you've had it. You won't be able to eat any bananas. <laughs> so just appreciating just this this uh, this vital function for what it is. They're like expressing a kind of gratitude and appreciation for breathing. Whoever thinks of that, you think breathing? Why concentrate on that? <coughs> Boring old thing. Inhalation, exhalation. It's more interesting to talk about who's who's bananas. Who has the right to? 
pass laws about bananas in the world. So like mindfulness of the breath, notice this consciousness, the vinyana, that's the Pali word, vinyana, consciousness. Breath, which is rupa. So then it's vinyana and rupa come together. So that this particular rupa is the breathing, so it's, it's like this. It's now, isn't it? It's not, not an abstract thing. So you're, you're learning to, to use uh, consciousness in a skillful way, your conscious experience. <coughs> you could spend the evening talking about, arguing about who's right, the British or the Americans, and get into all kinds of uh, heated arguments around something that, that, uh, isn't really important. You only get caught up in taking views, taking sides. So then the samarong, the bringing to one point, Mindfulness embraces, isn't it? Mindfulness of the breath, anapanasati. Means that the breath is now in the mind, isn't it? You're not putting your mind onto the breath. You're letting the breath be consciously experienced through, through a deliberate choice of paying attention to it. Then using uh, skillful means like buto or peace or some way of of just using words or using our ability to think and not uh, not to analyze but to to bring that suggestion to the mind to contemplate breathing as peaceful. Is when you kind of relax with your breath as it is. Uh, at least I feel a sense of peacefulness when I do that. When I just just relax and with the ordinary breathing of this body, the mental state uh, is like is quite peaceful, tranquil. And then from the breath go to the top of the head and just sweep through the body like we've been doing, the sensation, allowing sensation from the top of the head down to the soles of the feet and back up to the top of the head, just using your conscious ability to be conscious of the body, parts of the body, pieces, points, sensations. Sections of the body. 
the whole body. They're not just practice for the sweeping, but the sense of relaxing the body. Wishing it well, well-being, loving-kindness, respect for the body. This attitude of metta, <laughs> like I was reflecting on last evening, it works well with this, with all practices. It's an attitude more than a practice or a technique. At least this is, this is my take on it. There's an attitude of metta. Uh, metta includes everything. Uh, uh, everything you can possibly think of or imagine, good or bad, coarse or subtle, universal or microscopic. The attitude of total acceptance, non-critical, non-judgmental, Uh, kindness, acceptance of everything. It doesn't mean approval, it doesn't mean liking at all. Because so much of in our life we have to accept. We need to learn how to accept life, even in, in its failures and its suffering. Because it all belongs. Yeah. So, part of the whole. So metta is an attitude of that comes from the heart, from the intuition. It's not positive thinking, you know, like saying everything positive thinking is everything's wonderful, everything is good. Uh, and kind of convince yourself that all the conditions everything is just wonderful and perfect and lovely and beautiful. Life is beautiful. And this is positive thinking. But metta is, is a, it includes positive and negative. So sometimes I just use metta as a means to sweep through the body. It's a kind of total acceptance and kindness, non-critical, uh, attitude towards everything in the body, towards the breath and the each part, each section, each cell, each blood vessel, everything in the body. I'll try that. Just notice what how your body responds to that attitude. Is you have to find out for yourself. When you sweep through your physical body consciously, 
with this attitude of metta, what, what kind of results? What is the result of that, of loving kindness, of goodwill, of well-being towards this physical body? In metta, say, towards your own, towards the uh, rupa and then the nama, the same thing applies to emotions, memories, thoughts, habits. Good, bad, pleasant, painful. An attitude of well-being rather than picking, choosing, criticizing, controlling. Remember having insight years ago into meta practice and thinking for all sentient beings, for beings of every every sentient being in the universe, and then contemplating that. Some of these sentient beings are just thoughts or emotions. You know, the thing of sentient beings is just physical beings. But in terms of experience, my experience, here and now, there's the sentient beings, there's love and hate, and there's anger and resentment, and there's jealousy and fear, and then there's anguish and despair and grief and and uh, joy and happiness and goodness and generosity and morality and immorality and and the whole lot uh, rage and insanity stupidity nonsense Dullness, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, the whole thing is in metta. These are all sent, like sentient beings. They arise, they cease, they begin and end, just like a you know, physical body is born, grows up, gets old and dies. Thoughts, emotions, memories, they all, they're all, they, maybe their span is more, is, is long as a lifetime of a human individual, but it operates in the same way. They are all conditions, beings in their own right. And this awareness is, uh, is transcending those conditions. It's not, it's not judging. It embraces, it transcends us sometimes. It sounds like we're, we're getting beyond them and kind of uh, leaving them behind. But I don't mean that. I mean we're, we're embracing them all with this sense of uh, attention, kindness, patience, non-aversion toward them. So even if we do experience aversion, we have metaphor of aversion. Whatever you're feeling, it, it works the same thing. It doesn't, you're not trying to make yourself have loving feelings towards every condition, but even 
anger and uh, cynicism and bitterness in the present, you change your attitude towards it with this acceptance of it. It's like this, the way it is. The as-isness of it, the suchness of conditioned phenomena. I remember years ago at Chitterst, the when the uh, nun's cottage at Chitters used to belong to this uh, uh, kind of uh, fishing and hunting instructor called Mr. Fothergill. And he was expert fisherman. And uh, it's quite elderly. And he lived in the nun's cottage. It wasn't the nun's cottage then. It became that afterwards, after we, after he left. <laughs> and his wife, his wife also said to me, she says, I have nightmares about that when we leave this place, nuns sleeping in my bed. <laughs> and they were, they were a rather grotesque couple. They were, they were like in that story of Three Billy Goats Gruff. You know that children's story? There's that bridge, you know, when you go down to Chitters, you go to the nuns' college, there's this bridge. Mr. and Mrs. Father used to come out from under the bridge, like, what was it that, what was that, some kind of ogre? Troll, there's a troll, there were the trolls. And used to shout, get out of there. So then, they were they were just caretaking for the car. The owner of the cottage, Brigadier and Mrs. Chatterton, were a very elegant, posh couple. lived in Midhurst. They wanted to. They were well, intending to sell a nun's cottage in that valley to to us. One day I was watching Mr. Fothergill catch fish in the in the Hammer Pond. And he's really expert. I'm, I've never been a fisherman, but uh, so I've never liked doing those kind of things. But I was certainly impressed by his skill. He, he caught a fish, and I saw him. The fish bit the hook, and he was pulling it in. And I could see it's the fish in a state of terror. You know, it, it's uh, this terror was so obvious in this creature. And then he'd kind of let out the line and, and then pull it back and kind of exhaust the fish till he, till he finally pulled the fish in and then, then uh, killed it, hit it on the head. But contemplating the terror as embodied in this fish, you know, I saw terror. And you think it's just in the fish or we can dismiss if a fish it doesn't count because they don't they're not uh, you know we eat them and things like that so I mean they the fish is terrified so what when I was contemplating this reflecting on terror and and I felt this in my own mind a kind of terror with when I kind of opened my 
my heart to the fish, you know, rather than just kind of saw it as an object and just uh, this fisher, skillful man, skillful fisherman being able to catch a fish so well, but recognizing terror and knew that that terror would be exactly the same feeling that I'd have if I was being caught by Mr. Father Gill with a hook in my lip and being pulled, inevitably pulled and toward my death. Uh, That terror is terror, isn't it? It's not personal anymore. It's not fish terror. uh, Terror is something less than than the terror I would feel. I suddenly saw terror as terror. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, an emo- it's an emotion we all experience. And it doesn't mean it is less terrible if a fish is, in a fish than in a human being. And you see it in this way. So like when you contemplate your own emotional states like anger or fear or any any emotions you might be experiencing, uh, I suggest trying to contemplate them not as personal things anymore but as energies in the universe. You know, so it's, it's uh, Somehow it's like a compassion, uh, recognizing that that these are these are things we all share with each other. We all have to bear with in our lives: animal kingdom, all human beings. And there's a sense of compassion. Then the karuna arises in the, in this kind of reflection. And then, then, then I would say, may all, if I'm feeling angry right now, feel this motion of anger, then when I start reflecting on the feeling of it, I would matter to all angry beings in the universe that feel like this, or all frightened if I'm feeling fear, you know, just noticing this, totally accepting the fear that I'm experiencing praying for the welfare of all beings at this moment who have fear, who are experiencing fear or terror or greed or whatever. There's a story about when uh, one time I was on a Tudong walk with Nick Scott and Ajahn Ananda and we were in the the, uh, Yorkshire Dales. And it was getting evening, and we came, and we got this terrible sound coming from the valley nearby. And uh, what's that? I thought, what's that? It's kind of a wailing, kind of really strong, kind of sad wailing sound. I wonder what that is. As we came up over the crest of the hill, we saw a flock of sheep in a paddock, and they were all crying and wailing, these sheep. And Nick 
God said their lambs had just been taken away from them. And so, makes you want to cry, doesn't it? <laughs> that you don't think a female sheep, you would take her lamb away, that she would feel grief. <clears throat> but I witnessed this myself. I saw this, this grief, the separation from the love, the mother from the child, in an animal kingdom, in sheep. Happens all the time, just ordinary practice. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just sheep, doesn't matter. They're, they won't even remember the next day. Now, I don't know whether they, how much they remember, but uh, human women certainly would remember. And they're just children, or their babies are snatched away. But the the grief is the same thing, isn't it? It's not, it's not like grief in a sheep is anything less painful than grief in a human woman. This is a reflection, you know, just to, you see these emotions are, you know, they are what they are and we, we give them importance. Uh, we somehow put the human uh, condition or ourselves but somehow what we're feeling is more important than what anyone else or other creatures feel is one of our arrogant tendencies but contemplating it is grief is you know whether you re fortunately the sheep don't remember they don't they probably you know after a while it they can't remember what happened. But that doesn't belittle or minimize the actual experience. So just contemplating in this life that we live, this sense realm is like this. Separation from the loved, uh, fear, terror, resentment, anxiety, worry, um, jealousy, envy, or lust, rage, greed. And I mean, we all have, have these kind of feelings. So, because we can reflect we have reflective minds as human beings, we can, we can feel compassion, karuna. What would we think would happen if sheep suddenly started declaring rights? Sheep's rights. What do they say? You took my lamb away. I'll never forgive you. <laughs> they they can't reflect on it, but in the human human uh, human beings, we can we can we can expand our conscious experience to include all beings. With this, we're not just 
a species that we're just concerned only with our own species, even though sometimes we we act like that. But expanding, isn't it? This universal metta and karuna is universal, including everything. This is one of the great great gifts of our humanity. <laughs> 